we're going to have uh, two uh, main speakers and one uh, contributor to the uh, discussion today about the Women International Day. It is very important that um, we recognize the uh, struggle in, in worldwide women struggle for liberation and also it's very important day today that we could actually not listen to our speakers, uh, what the minister to us. We also had to ask questions and contribute to the discussion so we all learn from each other. So I'll, uh, I'll start first with my uh, first speaker is Jyoti, uh, please. Thank you, comrades. So um, before I start, um, I just really want to put in a plea and a plug, um, and that is for however much you like or don't like what I say today or the way I say it or you know however well you think I put the case across I really 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 want everyone here who hasn't already and even those who have to go away and read Engel's book The Origin of the Family Private Property and the State and the reason is that it sets out better than anything else what is the root of women's oppression where it comes from why and gives you, in a really beautiful way, an a, a incredible overview of the history of humanity. I was given that book, and I've got to say, it's one of the best things my mum ever did for me. When I was 15, I was given that book for Christmas, and before I knew anything political, really, um, I read it, and from that moment onwards, I felt like I had a framework for making sense, or starting to make sense of history, of human society, of my place in the world, and of almost every piece of human knowledge, in fact. It's an incredible, incredibly powerful book, and not that particularly big or hefty as a tome, um, but absolutely enlightening. Um, and it really is one of the key texts for understanding the women's question um, and putting our struggle today in context of history and recognising why it's, it's so important. Um, so what do we mean? When we say that women are oppressed, what do we mean? Well, the fact is, even today, um, when conditions for women in many parts of the world have really dramatically improved compared to what they were, say, a century ago, it is still the case that wages are lower for women who do the same work as men, that women carry out the lowest paid and unpaid work, that women are expected to carry out domestic labour for their families, whether or not they work outside the home as well. That women are expected to act as carers for the young, the old, the sick and disabled uh, family members. That women, um, as even recent statistics um, sadly show, are very often used as punch bags for the frustrations of their husbands and their boyfriends. <coughs> and that it is still considered normal and even inevitable that there should be a massive sex industry that relies on selling the bodies of women who have been physically or economically coerced into sexual slavery and that men who choose to have kind of probably got a kind of natural right to access this service. It's kind of natural, it's inevitable, it's normal relationship. Um, and as far as our own society in Britain is concerned, um, women have been presented as inferior to men for a good 2,000 years um, and for much longer in parts of the world where civilization developed earlier than it did here. And for all of that time, we were told that we were weaker, not just physically, 
but also mentally. That our brains are smaller and less powerful, uh, that we're unable really to think in the same complex ways as men, and therefore that we're well, unfit for public life. Uh, we were told that we were essentially lifelong children um, who needed to be guided and controlled by those who knew better, which happened to be men. A woman's place is in the home was a mantra for our ruling class until very recently, and even today, when it's been so thoroughly discredited, actually it's still a message that's very common um, and is regularly articulated across our media and in all sorts of ways. Um, the law, until very recently, backed up men's rights over their daughters and their wives, the right to beat them, to lock them up, to dispose of them in marriage or to relegate them into lunatic asylums if they're a bit difficult. All completely legal, no redress by a woman to any of those things. Um, and essentially until, as I said very recently, women's legal position in society was that they were chattels, the private property of property-owning men. And our only recognised purposes in life were to carry out unpaid domestic labour for our lords and masters and to produce children. So how did this come about? What was the cause um, of women's oppression? Well, because women were not always seen as inferior. You know, because of our importance as childbearers, which was valued and seen as being sacred and even a kind of magical function, the early human societies perceived women not just as equal to, but very often as more important, more powerful than men. Um, in primitive communistic um, tribal societies, there was a natural division of labour. So that on the one hand, you had women collectively responsible for running the households, gathering food. That meant looking after children, cooking, making clothes, making baskets, gathering wild foods, planting and tending small-scale crops. Um, and on the other hand, men were collectively responsible for heavier work, which included hunting, tending to livestock, once livestock had been domesticated, building shelters, making tools. But these divisions didn't imply any kind of superiority or inferiority. All the work was essential to the life of the tribe, the community. It was all recognised as being socially necessary. It was all carried out collectively for the benefit of everybody. And in fact, women's work tended to be more essential, more productive, more key to keeping society together and very much valued. Um, the point at which this really changed was when farming developed to the point that societies were able to start producing a surplus. Um, that means more than they can immediately consume. You start to get wealth. And this is the key, this is the really unlucky moment, if you like, for women. It just happened that when this development took place, the first property that was accumulated, the first riches known to humanity, were in the form of livestock. And that had traditionally been the sphere of the men. So private property grew as a phenomenon in the sphere where men were in control. And the old division of society had been according to family groups, and it was matriarchal. All family relationships were, re were reckoned according to who your mother was and, and how you're related to, who you're related to via your mother. And that meant that inheritance also went down the female line. So a man, if he had a, the odd personal possession, um, could leave it to his sister, his sister's children, 
but not to his own children because they were part of a different family group according to that structure of society. Um, and this didn't suit the new emerging class of powerful men who wanted to pass their new wealth onto their own children. And that was the moment at which matriarchal society gave way to patriarchal society. Mother right, as Engels called it, was overthrown. And their new requirement arose, not just that society should be structured in a patriarchal way so you officially recognise you know, fathers as, as the fathers of their children, but that you can control women physically to be sure that the paternity of the children is guaranteed. And the only way you can do that is that women of property-owning classes have to be locked up inside the home, becoming private servants of their husbands and fathers. They can't be left free to behave as they will. And of course, what becomes right and proper for a new ruling class naturally becomes disseminated via the ruling class's ideology, its media, its culture, its state machinery, to all the other classes. So a whole moral justification had to be, and was developed, to justify the subordination of women. Women became chattels for the production of heirs, and their domestic labour stopped being a collective communal act for society and became a private service performed for the male head of the household. And meanwhile, although monogamy, which is this idea of absolute fidelity in marriage, was society's official moral code, in reality, this virtue was only required of women. So you get this double standard, this hypocrisy which is alive until today, whereby alongside enforced monogamy for women, you have a whole new industry, which is prostitution a whole section of the female population forced into sexual slavery um, and a complete double standard in terms of official morality but actually what happens. Um, and as a result of all these developments, women were degraded from being full and equal members of a communistic society to being subordinate members of a class society. You know, this can seem like a very... You know, this is ancient history, right? A long time ago. So... How is women's oppression perpetuated today? What message does British capitalist society give women about their place, their role in today's society? And if you look around, you can see that even today, despite all the advances that women have made in really quite recent times, and despite the fact that we now have a formal legal recognition of women's rights in Britain, the ruling class still projects a very strong ideological message about women from its media and through all its cultural and political fronts. And something you're aware of as you grow up but m m won't always necessarily articulate and certainly gets brought home to you if and when you have children of your own is how different the social expectations and morality are for women than for men. So just a few examples that people are familiar with you know a man who has many sexual partners is a lad and is just following his natural urges a woman who has many sexual partners is a slag and is going against nature right a man who has firm opinions is strong and someone to look up to a woman who has firm opinions is unfeminine unattractive 
and to be denigrated. A man who spends his time looking after children is weak and not really masculine. A woman who doesn't spend her time looking after children is uncaring and unfeminine. And, you know, you can all add to that list, right? Our children are taught from a very young age that certain behaviours are associated with certain genders and encouraged to conform to the types that have been set. So on the one hand, you have boys who are expected and encouraged to be strong, to handle themselves physically, to suppress their emotions. You know, boys don't cry, right? To prepare themselves for a life out in the world. And on the other hand, girls are expected and encouraged from really early on to be quiet, to avoid rough playing, to be pretty, i.e., you know, to really think about and work on their physical appearance and you know, do everything they can to enhance it, to be decorative, as in, you know, think about their clothes, their accessories, you know, this is something they're from really young, massively encouraged to focus on, to make people like them, to be agreeable, not argumentative, to be sensitive to the motivations and needs of others in preparation for a role at the centre of a family home. Um, that's really what's presented to us as a successful, you know, the right kind of woman to be. Women in capitalist society suffer a really heavy social penalty, penalty when they carry out what is a social and biological function of producing the next generation. You know, capitalism has even further broken down the communities that formerly would have taken collective responsibility for raising and caring for all of our children. So care has become a private matter and a personal responsibility of one or two parents and what those parents can provide to their children depends completely on their private level of income, ability to access services, decent housing and all the rest of it. Um, there is next to no financial or physical support. Um, there had been a little from the welfare state and we're seeing that being removed now for child rearing. There is no real recognition of the fact that this is a task that concerns the whole of society. Having children is presented to us today as a private lifestyle choice, not a social need. Although you only have to think about it for a minute, what happens to human society if we don't produce the next generation, right? It's not going to last very long. And the ruling class propagates this attitude that says, if you can't provide for them, don't have them. You shouldn't have brought them into the world. When it comes to working, many mothers simply aren't able to return to work once they have children, with, given this lack of support, because the finances and the logistics of arranging childcare just don't work out. And for those who do go back to work, most of them will find that they are suddenly very much discriminated against in the workplace in a host of different ways. So essentially what's happened is they've lost this desirable for their employer's level of flexibility. They've got other priorities. Um, and employers don't like that. Sometimes that they need to work part-time or they need to be able to get away for, you know, or have sick days or just they can't stay that extra hour at the end of the day that someone demands on the spot. You know, oh, sorry, the school closes, I have to go. You know, this is all frowned on and seen as being inflexible. And individual employers feel that employing such women is unprofitable. It reduces their efficiency. They resent having to do it. They don't want to. Um, 
And women in that situation find it suddenly much harder to be promoted or considered for the most interesting work. Um, they're basically expected to be grateful if they're employed at all. Um, and this, of course, is emphasised even more at a time of crisis like the present, when we're seeing a concerted ideological attack on the rights of working mothers. So, for example, just recently in the Daily Mail, a, a very eminent surgeon uh, called Marion Thomas, who's a man, by the way, uh, wrote complaining about the expense of training and employing women doctors, saying it's a waste of public money. They're going to have children, take leave, they're expensive, it's silly, why do we bother? Um, and on the other hand, we had Nigel Farage of UKIP announcing the other day that this idea that women are discriminated against in the workplace is ridiculous. Of course women can climb as high as they want in the city, they just need to accept they can't have children. It's a lifestyle choice, is the message. It's an individual lifestyle choice. It shouldn't be for employers to have to make any, or society, to make any adaptations to... Um, adjust to that if you do it it's your business it's your choice if you want a good career don't do it that's the message and that's the bourgeois idea of women's freedom and meanwhile we find that the growth of the sex trade under capitalism and the development of this huge pornography industry has had massive ramifications on our popular culture and has reinforced the commodification of sex generally and of women in particular. So from a very young age, women and girls feel this huge pressure to present themselves, to behave and dress in certain ways that they are told will make them attractive to the opposite sex um, and that that is something that they should be really focusing on and aspiring to. Women in the public eye whether they're pop stars, dancers, actors, TV presenters or politicians, are subjected to a constant barrage of scrutiny and or criticism concerning their clothing, body shape, personal grooming and every aspect of their appearance. It's non-stop. And you will not read an article about a woman, whatever she's achieved, that doesn't start with and focus on what she looks like, what she's wearing, you know. And the proliferation of pornographic videos, etc., now means that even the act of sex itself is being transformed into a kind of performance that girls are growing up feeling like this is, they're going to be judged on it. You know? um, and we can say to ourselves, well, you know, but women have won a lot of freedoms in the West, right? Well, things are a lot better for us. And it's true that the position of women took some very big strides forward in Britain in the last century. Um, and especially after World War II. Um, but it's really important for us to understand just what forced the ruling class to make the concessions they have made and how actually reluctantly and half-heartedly um, those measures have been implemented. There's one earth-shattering event that dominates 20th century history and has affected almost every aspect of our lives um, in the last 100 years, and that's the October Socialist Revolution in Russia. You know, before 1917, Britain had a women's movement, but it was October and it was the building of socialism in the USSR that really drove a cart and horses through the age-old mythology that justified keeping women as second-class citizens and domestic slaves 
and denied them full legal rights. You know, this mythology about women's natural capabilities had hardly been modified since the days of primitive slavery, and it had this weight of thousands of years of habit behind it. Um, but with women taking up full roles in every area of public life and every kind of occupation, building Soviet socialism, the ground was just cut from under the feet of all of this. Before it had been you know, a few people standing up and saying, no, no, but this doesn't make sense, and everyone else saying, what are you on about? You know, look, look, it's inevitable, it's how it's always been. And suddenly there was the proof. People were doing it completely differently. Women were doing everything in the Soviet Union. Women were given the opportunity to work and they took it and they made incredible contributions. And the women's movement all over the world gained this really unstoppable momentum as a result of what happened in Russia. Um, meanwhile, rights for women and a formal recognition of women's equality in Britain, um, along with the provision of a few facilities that enabled at least some women to take up education and work opportunities that were previously closed <coughs> off to them, um, really came to us as part of the settlement that was the post-war welfare state. And that welfare state, certain guarantees of labour rights, um, employment, housing, a safety net for the working class in Britain, was a raft of concessions that were granted to working people by the ruling class to stop us from following that inspiring Soviet model. That was the aim, and it succeeded. It brought social peace, for, and it brought a chance for capitalism to re-establish and firm itself up after the debilitating damage of the war and the huge victories of the Soviet Union in that war. Um, but all the rights that we got here came piecemeal and very slowly. You know, in Russia, in 1917... The October Revolution made all discrimination against male control and um, all discrimination against women and male control over women illegal and immediately gave women not only the right to vote but also equal access to education, to jobs, equal pay, promotion to political and managerial positions straight away, 1917. Um, and by the 30s, you know, you were really seeing the fruits of that everywhere, which you didn't see anywhere else in Europe. In Britain, on the other hand, we got a law on equal pay, finally, after massive campaigning, in 1970. And it's never actually become a reality, in fact. It's just a law. It's a recognised right. And, of course, that's a step forward. But the reality is, as we know, there's still a massive pay gap. The first Sex Discrimination Act was passed in 1975. You know, when my mum was having me... In 1972, she could be told by her boss, um, no, no, we're not going to employ you part-time, no, no, we're not going to consider you for promotion, we know, you're, you know you've got children now, you'll be having more children, you'll be off soon. It's, you know, that attitude is still there, but he could say it to her face <laughs> in 1972. Um, the first no-fault divorce option was belatedly introduced here in 1969, so these rights, as I said, although they were won formally, were not ever universally implemented and still haven't been today. And of course, now that capitalism is in crisis and the welfare state is being dismantled, cuts are disproportionately affecting women and undoing the gains that they had made. So women are once more finding their responsib 
for taking on private, unpaid caring roles for their extended families as the support, social support facilities for the elderly, the disabled, young children that had been gradually built up since 1945 are being taken away again. Employers are once more asking openly why they should hire expensive women who might go off at any minute to indulge this selfish desire to have children. And of course, as unemployment rises, there's competition for even the lower paid and the part-time jobs that have been open to women, um, which means that it's women who are disproportionately finding themselves now being kicked out of the workforce and onto the dole. Now, we talked about this historical need to control women and, and ensure paternity. Well, today you can get paternity tests, right? So why would the ruling class still be bothered with oppressing women. What's in it for them? Now, of course, it's true that that real imperative to keep women guarded and locked up has been ameliorated by scientific advances um, and undermined, as I said, by what happened in the Soviet Union. But other factors lead to the continued oppression of women in modern capitalist society. Firstly, for as long as private property remains, there still is a wish for guaranteed paternity. And even if you can test, you know, if someone's, you know, worried that their wife is being unfaithful or the children aren't really theirs, okay, you can insist on a paternity test and you can get a divorce and you can disinherit. The reality is that actually doesn't happen too often in practice and there's really still a strong need for this moral code that promotes the idea of strict monogamy for women. And of course there are all the economic reasons we listed above when women's role in the workplace is considered individually and in a short-term way, which is the only way capitalists ever consider anything, taking out the overall benefit to society of the fact that you know women's collective input, or even taking out the view of what a woman will contribute in her whole career, individual employers will continue to resent any compromises they have to make right now when it comes to employing women of childbearing age um, at a point where they're going to get pregnant and have young children to care for or have other caring responsibilities, for example, with ailing parents, etc. You know, when it comes right down to it, taking the long view just isn't compatible with the need to maximise profits, which is the only real imperative um, that the capitalist system of production recognises. And finally, we come to the simple fact that capitalist rule is only maintained by dividing workers. So they're separated according to race, gender, age, locality and so on and encouraged to emphasise their differences and forget their essential likeness and community of interests. You know, we are all human beings and science has shown, has proved that while there are some natural differences between men and women Actually, these are pretty inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. They are not enough to mean that men are incapable of feeling empathy or caring for children or doing housework. And differences don't mean that women are incapable of managing large enterprises or flying a space rocket or engineering a bridge. Right? They don't add up to anything that really means very much. The socially engineered divide between men and women is as old as the divide between exploiters and exploited. And that's really important to remember. It comes with this huge cultural weight. And so continuing that divide really benefits 
our class of capitalist exploiters when they want to maintain their rule. And even more so, when you think about the fact that it was revealed, they, there was a newspaper article about it just recently, that the real rulers of this world, the, the imperialist ruling class of the planet, has shrunk to such a tiny size that these kind of super exploiters, the really big powerful ones, all of them, you could fit them comfortably in a, single, in a double-decker bus. A couple of hundred people. Can I ask you, could you please repeat what you said again? Between men and women and exploiters and exploit... There is something like that, I missed it. I said. The, so the socially engineered divide between men and women mm-hmm. is as old as the divide between exploiters and exploited. Mm-hmm. It started at the same time. Okay. So I'm just emphasising the weight of historical precedent for looking down on mistreating women, relegating them to this position. So given how, how tiny, in fact, the imperialist ruling class is, it's no wonder they need a really elaborate system of divide and rule and that they put so much effort into encouraging us to ghettoise ourselves and identify with smaller and smaller sections of our co-workers. But the plain truth is that even though it can no longer be denied ever since the October Revolution, that's the truth of it, it can't be denied that women ought to be considered and treated as equal to men. Capitalist society has shown, and we've had a hundred years of them admitting it, that they never will deliver that. Formal equality for women continues to be undermined by class and economic background. So your individual economic or class position as a woman determines what access you have to finances to give you private help in the home or help with caring responsibilities to see whether you'll be able to work or take your part in social life. The general economic climate, whether or not it suits capitalists as a whole to have more working women or fewer. the inability of capitalist society to provide for those who aren't capable of looking after themselves, whether it's the young, the old, people who are disabled in some way. Um, The need of the capitalist ruling class to divide workers, as I said, in order to control them, um, which leads, of course, to this constant reinforcing of social prejudices. So what's the answer? Now, I said already right at the beginning that the women's question is a class question. So it's not simply a question of educating men, not to say that there aren't plenty who could do with plenty of educating, or of getting rid of them, doing without them. What we need to do is remove the class divisions that perpetuate the need for controlling women and treating them as second-class citizens. That's why we believe that the only lasting answer to the problem is to abolish capitalism, which is the final incarnation of a class-divided society and to build socialism. Under socialism, all major property will once again be held in common and work will be organised collectively, including, of course, the vital work of caring for all those members of society who are unable to care for themselves and the essential task of bringing up society's children. Now, as part of taking collective responsibility for work, and also as a way of emancipating women from the private labour they perform at home, 
Socialist society provide public laundries, public dining rooms, creches, nurseries, kindergartens, after-school facilities, um, care for elderly people, care for the disabled, all sorts of things that mean that these roles become socialised and women are brought into the workforce. When the profit motive has been abolished, actually it's a relatively simple matter for society to simply allocate what, what resources are needed to ensure that everybody's needs are met. And everybody's ability to contribute to society and to social life can be maximised. Under socialism, therefore, there will be no need for this barrage of insidious and damaging propaganda that we're currently subjected to, which demeans, patronises, sexualises and commodifies women by turns, and which massively influences not only the way we relate to one another, but the way we see ourselves. The truth is that women have much to gain from the revolution, everything I would say. But it's also true that extra pressures that women so often face just trying to get on with their lives in a capitalist society make it very hard for them to create the space to think about that and to be involved. So it's our job as people who do understand that to help them to want to do it and to really be as facilitating as possible in helping them to achieve that involvement. And it's especially important when we realise what influence our example sets for the next generation. You know, we have to remind ourselves constantly that our children are learning about what matters in life, not only from the capitalist media and capitalist school books, but also from watching the example their parents set. You know, a busy political mother is not the norm in our society, and she certainly can be made to feel guilty at choosing to spend time away from her children. But there's something her children gain from that situation. They learn that everything their mother does doesn't have to conform to the images they've been fed on the TV and in their storybooks. They also learn that mothers can have an independent existence and a purpose in life outside the home and the family. And they will learn, by watching their mother prioritise things in her life, that there are some things that matter more than their individual family unit. And that's the message we need our next generation to understand. Political mothers beget political and conscious children. You know, it's a common phenomenon that men who leave their wives at home to look after their kids while they go to meetings unencumbered will, in years to come, be surprised to discover their children have grown up either indifferent to or even hostile to revolutionary politics. They weren't involved, their mother wasn't involved, they saw it simply as something that took their father away. Chairman Mao summed up the need for women's participation when he said that women hold up half the sky. He also talked about how a movement can only be said to be truly popular when it's produced a culture of its own. Um, and in my lifetime in Britain, one of those popular mass struggles that I've been inspired by is that of the people in the north of Ireland against British imperialism. And that has had a truly um, flourishing culture that's gone along with it. Um, and there's one s songwriter in Derry called Declan McLaughlin who wrote a song I really have always loved, dedicated to the women, um, the crucial role played by women in all areas of the struggle over there. 
And I just want to read you a couple of lines from that um, song. He says, When men behind the wire echoed up and down the street, you were planning revolution with your children at your feet. When the images of Ireland as a woman have all gone, it's the women of the movement that keep it moving on. Comrades J.V. Stalin really summed up what I want to say, which is that not a single great movement in the history of the oppressed has been able to do without the participation of working women. If we are serious about abolishing capitalism and building socialism in Britain, we have to do whatever is necessary to overcome all the barriers to women's participation in our movement, to inspire women to want to be part of our movement, to mobilise working class women so they want to and they do take their vital place and ensure our victory. Thank you, George. It's really an excellent...